morals, the teachings of this world. So to be a faithful Christian, you're going to live in a place of tension. And it's a kind of tension that obviously we shouldn't seek to resolve by compromising with the world. Uh, The kingdom of God is at cross purposes with the kingdom of this world. And if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you'll experience that. So I think what that means for us as Christians is that we will face a, a kind of chronic temptation to compromise. That the more we stay close to Jesus, there should there will always be this kind of nagging temptation to, to say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to go along. I'm going to get along. Because it's so hard being the only Christian in my homeroom, the only Christian in my family, the only Christian in my, you know, whatever, book club. And it can just be tiring being that person. And so there's this temptation to go along, to get along, to give in, to not cause waves, to blend in. Well, that was the temptation being faced by this church that we're going to study about today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, the church in Pergamum. Uh, here we are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If, if you probably know, these are the chapters 2 and 3 has the risen Jesus speaking seven messages to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which today would be the country of Turkey. And there in Western uh, Asia, there were these seven churches. The risen Jesus has a message for each one of them. Today we're on the third message, which is to the Christians who are living in the city of Pergamum. And the basic message is to warn them against compromise. They too are living in a place of tension with their culture, being in the world but not wanting to be of the world. And, And there are forces at work in the church that are calling them to snap the tension, to cut the knot, by giving in to the cultural practices and pressures around them. So, let's look at the letter itself. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So like all the other letters, Jesus begins this one by introducing himself with some characteristic of himself taken from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Jesus appears to John, and there's this incredible vision of the risen Christ. And then what happens is in these letters, in chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus will introduce himself by drawing upon some aspect of the vision from chapter 1. One of the things in chapter 1 is that Jesus has the sword of judgment. So this letter starts out, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So if you're going to get a letter from Jesus, it's probably not a good sign if he starts it by saying, and I'm the guy with the sword of judgment. <clears throat> you know, it sets a very ominous tone for the whole message. And Jesus does have a very stern warning to give to this church. But before he gives the warning and the rebuke, he first tells them what they're doing well. And so a lot of these letters have commendation and then condemnation. Attaboys followed by warnings and threats and dangers. So what is this church doing well? And that's in verse 13. And basically, just to summarize, what they're doing well is that they have stood their ground in a season of open hostile persecution from their community. That the believers have gone through some kind of oppression, even including violence, and they've stood firm in the face of it. So if you look at verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So they've come out of some period of testing where there was open persecution against the church in the city and they stood their ground even when one of their people in their church got martyred. I mean, it must be a tough place to live. It's, it's where Satan has his throne. You know, that sounds like a tough place to be a Christian where Satan has his condo or whatever. I mean, he lives there 
in the city, apparently. And what does that mean, where Satan has his throne? Um, tough to say exactly. Different uh, theologians and scholars try to pinpoint what the Satan's throne reference would have been. Uh, some speculate that it could have been the various temples to the gods there. If you were to go to ancient Pergamum, you would have seen this big mountain rising out of the ground behind the city, and it would have been covered with different temples on top. So there was a temple to the goddess Athena, a temple to Dionysus, or sometimes called Bacchus, the god of wine and partying. Uh, then at the very top of the Acropolis would have been this enormous temple to Zeus that historians uh, say was seen from miles away as you were approaching the city. And so maybe that huge temple to Zeus on top of the mountain was like Satan's throne over the city. Another theory is that there was another god worshipped there in Pergamum called Asclepius, who was the god of healing and medicine. In fact, they had a, an ancient medical facility in Pergamum. And the symbol of Asclepius is the serpent. Maybe you've seen doctors. You know, they have the doctor's emblem with the two serpents like that around the little whatever that is, thing. So, the, you know, those of you in the medical profession know what I'm talking about. That's, that sort of, you know, comes from this, the god Asclepius, who was the serpent. Maybe the serpent represents Satan in this analogy here. It's tough to say. I, probably a, a third option that I, if I had to I'd put my money on one, I'd probably lean toward this one, which is that Pergamum was the uh, capital of the Roman province of Asia. So in this Roman province, the capital city was Pergamum. And in fact, uh, Pergamum had the very first altar built to the worship of Caesar, Caesar Augustus. The very first one in Asia was built in Pergamum. So Pergamum sort of had that, that pride. Like, we're the place where the first altar to the Caesars was built. And they, they kind of had that Roman pride. They were the Roman capital. And, and if anything, I'd say probably that, since Rome is so much sort of looming throughout Revelation as the present manifestation of satanic power against the church. And so maybe it's because that was the Roman capital. So, but I don't know exactly what it means that it was Satan's throne. But I do think we know this. It's not a good thing. <laughs> it's bad for the church. They were in a place where they were going to face open hostility and persecution. And in fact, already had. They have come out of some season of testing. And, and they stood their ground by God's grace. You see that? They did not renounce their faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Even when there was a Christian in their church who actually was killed for his faith, they didn't flinch and they didn't budge. You know, and I, whenever I read things like this, when I read historical accounts, I always, just kind of my own imagination, I try to put myself in that situation. What would it be like to be in a local church where one of your members had been killed for their faith? And what would, well, imagine coming to church here and everyone comes in and we got the Christmas decorations up. And imagine we had like a big sort of uh, eight, by, 8 by 12 or whatever photo of someone on the wall here. And someone's like, well, who's, who's that guy in the photo? Is that, is that some guy in your church? We're like, yeah, well, that's Seth Rogers. Uh, he was a pastor here, but he was killed for his faith. And we put his picture up to remember him, you know. Could you imagine like, really? That, that's, yeah, yeah, we all knew him. And, and he stood up for his faith. And some of us were thrown in prison. A couple of us lost our jobs. But he gave his life for the faith. You know, just think of the tone of that kind of church that had that battle scar on it. But, you know, we, we imagine that. There's brothers and sisters around the world today who don't have to hypothetical that. They know that. There are Christians around the world today in countries where 
Uh, it is costly to be a Christian. Uh, you know, a website you can check out that's kind of interesting. It's called opendoors.org, Open Doors. And it's uh, a Christian website in an organization that tracks religious freedom and persecution around the world. In fact, they have this thing called the, the Worldwide Watch List, where they have a regular assessment. I think it's every quarter they update it to say where are the, the countries in the world where the fiercest persecution against religious freedom is. And top of the list right now, I looked to see who's on the leaderboard right now. Right now it's North Korea. So the hardest place to be a Christian in the world right now is North Korea. That's the place, you know, where does Satan have his throne, so to speak? It's there. I mean, that's the most likely place that you're going to be imprisoned, killed, or something for being Christian. Number two on the list is Saudi Arabia. If you proselytize or share the gospel with a Muslim in Saudi Arabia, you can be killed for that. Um, it's a tough place to be a Christian. And it makes me think, like, like if I was a pastor in one of these countries, would I be bold enough to keep preaching the gospel if I knew it could cost me dearly? Even if I could be thrown in prison for five years and not see my kids grow up for five years? There's brothers and sisters who are facing that today. And so open persecution is still taking place. Would you share your faith with someone if you were worried that that person could report you to someone who could then make life difficult for you? That's what some of our brothers and sisters face on a daily basis. And so they had gone through this here in Pergamum. But by God's grace, they stood firm. They didn't renounce the name of Jesus. They stood strong. So it's a testimony to us that we need to not be afraid. But having said that, there was still a problem in the church in verses 14 and 15. Yes, they had stood strong through a season of open persecution, but they were now failing the test on a different front. And the new front they're failing the test test on is is not violent public oppression, but rather inward, inner false teachers who had come into the church and were teaching a message of compromise with the culture. It's almost like Satan's changed strategies. You know, he hammered on them with a sledgehammer for a while. Wham, wham, wham. They didn't break. So he goes, okay, well, let's try something else. How about instead of the hard cell, we'll try the soft cell. Let's send in some false teachers into their midst who will call for the same message of compromise just using a different tactic, trying to seduce them rather than force them to compromise. And so it was a different strategy. And I think it's just a warning to us that Satan will try anything anything to get us to compromise our faith in Christ. He's the ultimate pragmatist. He doesn't care what it is. And and, and you know what? It's different for each of us. He knows us. Like for you, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe for you, it's pride or money. And for another person, it's suffering. But whatever it is, you know, he sort of knows us and he dials up, uh, you know, a personalized temptation for each of us because he knows what it is that gets to each of us and our personalities. Uh, the, the Puritans uh, had a word for this. I've, I've said this before. They called it our bosom sins. That we all have certain sins that are special to us. You know, we hold them against our bosom. Like, this is my special sin that gets to me. And, and he knows that. And so he changes tactics now. The, the outward persecution didn't break them. Fine, we'll try a different strategy. We'll bring false teachers in who will use religious arguments, spiritual arguments, maybe even biblical arguments. We don't know exactly what they said. That to say that God is telling you that it's okay to compromise and to break that tension between you and the pagan culture around you. To give in to the values, beliefs, and morals that are contrary to Christ's teaching. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. 
He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So within the church now, not outside persecuting forces, but within the church, you had either one or two groups. It's kind of tough to tell from the Greek whether there's two separate groups or whether it's one group, the Nicolaitans, who are like Balaam of the Old Testament. But whatever it is, the point is not not so much how many groups there were, but what they were teaching. And what they were teaching was a message of compromise, just like Balaam had done in the Old Testament. Now, who's Balaam? It's you know it's sort of an obscure Old Testament reference. Kind of an interesting Old Testament character. A, a little bit of a hard one to get a handle on exactly who this character was. Uh, but, but he was a character who basically enticed the Israelites into sin. Let's go back and look at his story. Put a bookmark here in Revelation. Go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 22. And we're going to look at the background here. It's on page 152 in the Pew Bible. Page 152, the book of Numbers, chapter 22. We're going to look at, uh, look at old Balaam and see who he was in the Old Testament and then see how that helps us understand what Jesus is saying in Revelation. <clears throat> so, Numbers chapter 22. Okay, quick background. The Israelites, here's where we are in the history of the Old Testament in this passage. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've gone through the desert. They got the Ten Commandments. They've now come to the edge of the Promised Land. They're camping right across the Jordan River from the city of Jericho. They're getting ready to go in and take the Promised Land. Uh, but they're in the land of the Moabites. And the Moabites are a pagan people. And the Moabites are kind of freaked out that all these Israelites are here. So if you look at chapter 22 of Numbers, verse 1, it says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, he's the king of Moab, now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, he sent messengers to summon Balaam. So here's Balaam, son of, uh, Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Now who's Balaam? He's some kind of prophet, diviner, sorcerer kind of guy. And look what Balak says to him. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So Balaam is some kind of guy, some kind of prophet or something who, as we'll see, hears from God and he can put curses on people or you can bless them and apparently it was effective uh, or at least Balak thought it was and so Balak says I'm going to give you money I want you to come here and I'm going to pay for a curse on the Israelites I can't beat them in battle there's too many of them but maybe if you curse them maybe I got a shot at whipping them on the battlefield it's the basic idea but Balaam tells Balak very plainly look you can pay me whatever you want but I can only say what God says to me and if God doesn't curse them I can't curse them so just know that up front. And so, you know, they go back and forth and just long story short, eventually Balaam comes 
to curse them. And that starts in chapter 23 and 24. And, uh, and so Balaam goes and he prays and God speaks to him. And then instead of cursing them, he pronounces a blessing over Israel. And Balak is like, what are you doing? Curse. I ordered a curse. I didn't order a blessing. So he takes him to another place. He's like, well, let's try over here. Maybe you come over here. And he prays again. And another blessing comes out. And Balak freaks out again. And so we'll try it a third time. And sure enough, you know, you, get, you can guess. A third time a blessing comes out. And now Balak is hopping mad. He's like, I, I paid for you to curse them, not bless them. And Balaam says, hey, keep your money. I can only do what God says. And by the way, here's a freebie. Gives him a fourth blessing. So there are these four blessings from Balaam. And it, it's an amazing story of of how nothing can stop God and His plans. And if God's blessing is on His people, it's on His people, and you can't stop it. And even this great, powerful prophet, sorcerer, whatever he was, couldn't do something contrary to the will and the power of God. So that's chapter 20, up to chapter 24. And then something really weird happens. You go from chapter 24 with all these amazing blessings on Israel to chapter 25 of Numbers, and suddenly we see a catastrophic moral and spiritual failure among the Israelites. The people who are blessed, got their socks blessed off in chapters 22, 23, 24, now just blow it morally. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. God has blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. And what do they do? They run off with these Moabite women. They, they're sexually immoral with them. And then they go and worship the Moabite gods and eat at the Moabite idol feasts. It's like, what happened? How did they get from chapter 24 where they're blessed to chapter 25 where they're completely compromised? Where that tension between them being the Israelites in the middle of Moab, instead of living in that tension, they just capitulated. They worshiped their gods. They took their women and, and totally collapsed morally. What happened? Well, go to Numbers 31. Here's the little tidbit that we find out later. So it's just a little later in the story when the Israelites are, are declaring war as instruments of God's judgment. Look at Numbers 31, verse 15. Moses said, Have you allowed all the women, talking about the Moabite women, the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away for the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that the plague struck the Lord's people. Okay, so that was Balaam's idea. So apparently the missing piece of the story is that we get here is that after Balaam fails to curse the Israelites and he's ready to go home, he apparently says, hey, you know, Balak, I can't curse him for you, but i got an idea. <clears throat> you know, send the women in to entice them away through promiscuity and through worshiping their gods. Throw a big party for them. Hey, you want to trick the men? It's easy. Food and sex. You got them. Oh, yeah, food and sex. That'll do it. So they send the Moabite women in and they trick them all. And a lot of the men turn away from the Lord. 
Now let's go to Revelation chapter 2. This will make a lot more sense. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So, just as Balak couldn't defeat the Israelites militarily, so you could say that the church in Pergamum couldn't be defeated through persecution. They stood their ground. But, there's another strategy. Just then as Balaam in the Old Testament taught Balak to trick the Israelites through food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, so the same thing now is being used in the church in Pergamum. They've resisted the external persecution, but they're not detecting and resisting the internal false teaching that's calling them to compromise their faith. Do you see that? So they're being lulled into sin, into compromising with the culture around them. Notice the two things. First of all, by eating food sacrificed to idols. Um, eating was a part of idol worship. If you're going to worship a, an idol in the ancient world, you go to a feast. I mean, heck, eating is something we all do to celebrate anything. That's just a human thing. You could get together for Thanksgiving, you get together for Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July, Super Bowl. <laughs> what do you do? You eat. You have a big meal. In fact, I think it's almost like, this is my own little theology of food here. Um, this is Jeremyology, not the Bible. But just my own little theology of food is, is that I think that like food has been created by God to, to sort of knit people together, that we have fellowship around food. I mean, you go on a date. What do you do? You go out to eat. You share food. And when people share food together, there's something that's built between them. It's, it's, some, it's, it's kind of like a social glue that, that ties people together. And when they eat together and they have a meal, and, and especially true in covenant meals in the Old Testament and religious meals. I mean, we have a meal here. It's symbolic, but we have it in church, don't we? We call it the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. We, we have this symbolic meal where the Lord is serving us. We're at the Lord's table and we're having a fellowship meal with the Lord. And so it was with ancient rituals. When you worship the pagan idols, you would worship the idol, you would sacrifice an animal to them, part of the, the meat would be burnt, and then part of it would be eaten and you'd have a, fe- a feast together. So, so it would be tempting to be a part of the idol worship in the city of Pergamum. Because there's big festivals and everyone's partying and everyone's eating, and here's the Christians, what are you doing? I'm staying home. What do you mean? It's the festival of Dionysus. This is the biggest party of the year. What are you, a bad Pergamite? Don't, don't you support the local gods? What kind of a citizen are you? You're like, no, I'm, I'm staying home. <laughs> what do you mean you're staying home? Come on out. Party with us. Celebrate. And, and so these Christians were saying no, but now there were some coming in saying, eh, it's okay. And they're probably using some kind of spiritual or biblical twisting of Scripture. Who knows what exactly they said. I, I can imagine the kinds of things they might have said. They might have said like, oh, just go. It's okay. Just go eat at the idol feast. I mean, come on, we don't really believe the idols are gods as Christians now, do we? We don't really believe Zeus is actually real. We know there's no Zeus. We know there's no Diana or Artemis or any of these other gods. And so when we're there, we're not really worshiping those gods. We're just, we're just there with the people. And so how, how can we be worshiping something we don't believe exists? We're just eating and having a party. Oh, by the way, it's evangelism, really. 
I mean, we're there to share the gospel. I mean, we're trying to build bridges of relationships with these people. And we're trying to be friendly with them. We don't, how are we going to be able to share the gospel if we don't go to these feasts where the people are? And you could just see, you know, all kinds of spiritual arguments could be made. Like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, I, I would like to be a witness, you know. And deep down, what I really want is just to stop being a weirdo. I want to stop being viewed as some kind of separatist in the community who won't even participate as a good citizen in the civic worship of the deities. And so they're tempted. I think in some ways we face, not exactly, but similar kinds of pressures in America today as, as we've become more pluralistic religiously as a nation, as there are different religions and spiritualities coming in. There is a pressure to kind of affirm all the different religions and beliefs. You know, there's this idea that we, we need to respect all religions and all beliefs. And I, I agree with that as long as I can say what I mean by respect all religions. You know, what I mean is I think everyone should have a right to practice their religion. I believe in religious freedom because I want religious freedom too. And, and I believe in respecting people as individuals and not mocking them, belittling them, or treating them badly. But, but I, I'm afraid that sometimes when you hear respect all beliefs, the implication of that is you need to affirm all beliefs as true, valid, good, and acceptable. That's kind of the idea. And if you don't do that, then somehow you're intolerant or something, whereas I have a different understanding of what tolerance means. Um, and, and so it's a tricky kind of thing to, to live in this kind of culture. The conventional wisdom, I think, in America today that you often hear people say is all religions are basically the same. They all teach you to be a good person. They all teach pretty much the same things. They all worship the same God. They just call him by different names. You know, and that sounds enlightened. It sounds true until you actually study the different religions <laughs> and see how radically different they really are, not just at a superficial level, but even in their core tenets and beliefs. There are radical differences between the world of religions. It's, it's very superficial to say they're all the same. It's like, really? Which ones <laughs> are exactly the same? They seem very different to me in a lot of ways. And so to be a Christian who says, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is just a way. I believe he's the way. You sound like a small-minded, narrow kind of person in the, the cultural milieu in which we live. And so it's, there's pressure, I think, to, to sort of get along, to go along, and to not stand up for the unique name of Jesus and say, you know, this is what I believe. I believe Christ is the way, the truth, the life. That He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He's the one who rose again. He's the Savior. And, and that can be tough to say that. We just feel odd saying that. As much as the Christians in Pergamum probably felt odd not going to the feasts around them. And we feel that pressure today. Um, you know, just at a personal level, as a pastor in this church, in this community, uh, I, I, sometimes in this community in Hingham and other towns, they'll have ecumenical worship services or ecumenical prayer services where the different churches will come together and have a Thanksgiving worship service. And, and I haven't ever participated in those, and I haven't led our church to participate in those, for the main reason being, I, I don't know how to be involved in worship if we're not worshiping the name of Jesus. If, if we're not standing on the cross, I mean, what do I have in common with worshiping with people, you know, saying we're worshiping together when that person doesn't believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Who are we worshiping? And so, you know, that's just a stand I've taken. But it, it, does it make me feel uncomfortable at times? Yeah. Because, you know, I'm like everyone else. I want to I be part of the crowd. I don't want to be the guy who's over here like, no, I will not. You know, I want to be a part of things. And so there's a pressure you feel 
when you stand up like that. And, and I think that as, um, as, as our culture becomes more and more invaded, especially by this notion of spirituality, because spirituality, it's, it's like, it's sort of gooey and shapeless and it can fit in all the cracks and it's easy to not detect when the new sort of new age spirituality is creeping in around us and not to detect it as a false religion because it doesn't have a church per se. It doesn't have a building. It's just sort of a belief system, the spirituality. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual kind of a thing. And it's hard to detect it sometimes. I'll tell you a story um, that some parents told me, uh, some Christian parents about a school. I, I won't say what the school is or where, but it's a local school around here a few years ago. Um, and this, in the school they wanted, it's an elementary school, they wanted to support the troops, which is good. It's commendable. But what they did was every day over the loudspeaker, the principal would come on and say, we're going to have 30 seconds of silence and we're all going to focus and channel positive energy to the troops. And then they had, they did this every day. And then they had an assembly where they got all the kids together and led by the principal. The kids were all supposed to channel their positive energy to the troops. And so, uh, you know, obviously these Christian parents found out about it and were a little bit troubled <laughs> that they were practicing essentially new age uh, sort of aura channeling kind of ideas. And so, so they went to the, the principal and they're like, can we just send, instead of sending energy, can we send like cookies? <laughs> can we send a letter? Can we send a care package? Would that be okay? And, and they, they just could not explain to this principal in a way the principal could understand that what they were doing, that the sending out of energy was actually religious behavior, that, that it was a, a spiritual behavior. That it wasn't physical, it wasn't a cookie, it was you know, a belief system. And the, and the teacher just couldn't grasp it. But I think that's part of the spirituality thing that everyone is into. It's so vague and nebulous and slippery, people don't recognize it. as It's a religious system, it just doesn't meet in a building like this. And so we have to be discerning as Christians. We have to really be discerning about what we participate in, how we do it. And in order to honor Christ, to say, you know, we stand for Christ and we don't compromise on this. But it's not just religious practices. I think it's just even standing up for a Christian worldview, standing up for a Christian belief system. Um, You know, maybe you have a professor or a teacher in school who has very outspoken beliefs and that you, you you know where they stand on certain issues. And then you have to write a paper. And sometimes you feel a pressure in your paper to parrot what the professor has said, even though you believe something different. And so it's like, do, do I say in my paper what I really believe, or do I say in my paper something I don't believe, but I don't want the professor to come down on me and give me a bad grade? And so we feel those kinds of pressures. Or maybe you're in a book discussion group, right? And everyone in the group is talking about a book, and you're the only Christian there. And it's like, well, do I stand up and say, well, actually, I have this issue with the book because I'm a Christian. But then you think, well, I don't want to say that because I, I want to build relationships and so I can witness to them someday about Christ. So, like, when is someday? You know, this is the day. This is the opportunity to, to let Christianity and let Jesus enter into the world of ideas and the world of discussion, to enter into the public square and to speak, to speak the name of Christ in the situations. But just moving along quickly here, the other temptation that they had was to commit sexual immorality. And this is just an, this is the oldest one in Satan's playbook. You know, sexual sin is just something we're all so prone to. We're sexual beings created by God. Sex is good. It's created by God for marriage. But in our sinfulness, we've corrupted it and turned it into an idol. I think when little demons go to demon elementary school to learn their ABCs of how to tempt people, I, I suspect the first day of demon elementary school is sexual temptation. 
It's like, look, this is page one in the playbook. You probably don't even need to get to page two. Just start here. Most of the time it'll work. I mean, it's, it's just such a powerful thing. And here it is again, warning against sexual immorality. And, and that comes into the church too. There are voices in the church today that say that, that sex outside of male-female marriage is okay. You know, a lot of churches around America today are splitting in half over the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, the Episcopal Church, some of you are Episcopal, grew up Episcopalian. That church is, you know, right down the middle. Whole dioceses are breaking off from the Episcopal Church and joining up with the Anglicans. Uh, the Anglican Church in Africa, uh, where it's more conservative and I'd say biblically faithful. And so this whole divide is, is taking place. But it's not just the issue of same-sex marriage. I think we have to look at our own hearts and to say, am I being faithful? Am I honoring God with my sexuality? Am I being pure in my sexuality? Am I glorifying God with every dimension of my person, including that dimension of my person? Um, those of you who are single, you know, the temptation out there to, oh, don't be so legalistic, don't be such a prude, it's not a big deal. How many Christians who name the name of Jesus think it's okay to live together, cohabitate uh, outside of marriage? And what about those of us who are married? Are we resisting sexual immorality? Are we staring hour upon hour at pornography on the computer screen? Are we faithful to our spouses? This is just an area I think we have to keep up a constant vigilance because of the nature of temptation and sin. And it appears that in this church, those temptations were working. They worked in Balaam's day, they're working in the Pergamum day, and they work in our day. And so they're resisting, they have to resist these temptations. And so Jesus Verse 16 says, repent, therefore. Repent. If you're compromising in these ways, just stop it. (laughs) Change direction. You know, just cut it off. Stop it. Cease, desist. Go the other way. Don't compromise, but stand for, if you're a Christian, stand with Christ. Then he says, otherwise I will come to you when I fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Kind of like the parents, don't make me come down there. (laughs) You better take care of this. Not only stop compromising, but I think what that implies is, because I will fight against them, against the false teachers. So it's not just stop compromising, but stop allowing false teachers free reign in your church. Like someone's got to confront these people. And if they won't listen, if they won't repent, your church has got to get rid of these people. You've got to excommunicate them so that they don't corrupt the church like a cancer. You know, you, we, we cut cancer out of our bodies, but we won't cut cancer out of our churches when it's there. And maybe if you send these people away, who knows, maybe they'll repent and come back themselves. I mean, that's the goal of church discipline is not to kick people off the island. It's to bring people to repentance and faithfulness to Jesus. So maybe that will happen. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then, of course, it closes with this encouragement. I love this. All these letters, they're hard to hear, but they always end with a real strong encouragement. To him who overcomes, to him who listens to what Jesus is saying and through the power of the Holy Spirit overcomes. And I just want to say, by the way, the only way to overcome in the battle against temptation is through the power of God. You know, the only way to resist these sins is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to walk in step with the Spirit every day It's not like, all right, God, I'll go beat this. I'll see you when I'm done. No, no. It's waking up every morning, opening my Bible, saying, Jesus, speak to me. It's praying every day, Lord, strengthen me. 
I want to follow you today, but I need your strength to do it. I can't do this in my own strength. Um, it's putting on the spiritual armor every day through prayer. I don't know about your own spiritual experience. I find the days when I start my day by reading God's Word and praying, I am so much stronger against temptation and weakness and pride than the days when I'm like, well, I'm too busy today to spend time with God. God, I can't spend time with you today. I've got to go do stuff for you today. <laughs> God's like, slow down. Hang out with me first. Let's be together before you go off and serve me. So we need, we need to be strengthened to overcome. But to him who overcomes, there are two things. Number one, he says, I'll give some of the hidden manna. Jesus has got food for us. We don't need that idle food. There's a hidden manna. The manna that comes down from heaven. Those Israelites had the manna still coming down in the time of Balaam. But instead of relying upon that, they went and ate the idol meals and filled themselves up with that. And so we have to choose, where are we going to eat? Are we going to eat in the buffet of this world? Or are we going to let Christ be our, our food? Let Christ be our satisfaction. He is the manna from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. John chapter 6. He's the manna. He's the one who can satisfy our souls and fill us up. And so will my, will my strength come from Christ or will it come from the things of this world which don't fill, which don't satisfy the idle foods of this world that I look to that never seem to work? You know, it's kind, eating idle food instead of Christ is kind of, like, it's kind of like on Thanksgiving. If you woke up Thanksgiving morning, you got in your car and you went straight over to McDonald's. And you just gorged yourself there for an hour. Happy meals, quarter pounder with cheese, fish fillet. Just kept stuffing it out until you were almost sick. And you got in your car and drove over to Burger King and, and somehow managed to stuff in some quarter, you know, some bacon double cheeseburgers or whatever they have there until you were just ill from eating all this junk food. And then you went over to Grandma's house for a Thanksgiving meal. And Grandma's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Look at this huge Grandma spread I made for you. And you go, oh, I can't eat another thing. I've been eating McDonald's all morning. Sorry, no thanks. No thanksgiving for me. Like, what are you thinking? This is the meal of the year. There's one meal you want to eat. It's Grandma's Thanksgiving. You know? It's like, if there's one meal you want to eat, people, it's to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's a one meal you don't want to miss. <laughs> but when we fill ourselves up on all the junk of this world and find our meaning, our happiness, our satisfaction by, through sin and these things, it just it leaves us sick. So we need to wait for the heavenly manna. We need to look to Christ for our hope. And then the other thing we get if we overcome through the power of God is this. He says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, what is the white stone? I don't really know. Scholars have different ideas. Uh, you know, in ancient Rome, if you were on a jury, you'd get two stones. You get a black stone and a white stone. White stone meant innocent. Black stone meant guilty. Maybe that's it. Uh, some scholars say it could be the white stone you got as your admission ticket into the, the theater, uh, the, the amphitheater. Uh, some say it was some kind of medallion. So I don't really know what... Ex there's different things it could be. But I think the point of the, of the stone is not what the stone is, but the point is what's written on the stone. That's the important thing. Because on the stone is a new name written on it known only to him who receives it. Now what is this new name? I don't think it's a new name that we get. In other words, it's, I don't think it means that while I'm on earth, I'm Jeremy, but when I get to heaven, I get a new name, and now I'm Maximus or something. You know, it's not... 
Or in my case, it would probably be Dilbert, you know, or whatever. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it's that I get a new name myself. I think the new name on the stone is Christ's new name. It's, it's that we get the name of Jesus written upon us. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Here's another overcomer passage. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Here we go. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven. I will also write on him my new name. And so I think the stone is, is the name that says, I belong to Jesus. It's the, I'm possessed, I, I'm owned by Christ. He's bought me with his blood. And let me tell you something, people. On the final judgment day, when we stand before God, the only thing that's going to matter is having one of those in your pocket. That's it. The richest man on the world on that day would gladly trade all his wealth a million times over to get one of those stones. When we see the glory of eternal life with Christ and the horrors of hell, the only thing you will want on that day is to be one of the people with a stone. And so it's worth trading everything you have for this stone. Jesus is the great treasure. The, the, the New Testament talks about giving up everything in order to get the pearl of great price. This is who Jesus is. He is the treasure. Do you have Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Have you repented of your sin and instead turned around and put your faith in Christ as your Savior? Have you put all your hope in Him? Or are you still dining at this world? We're all trying to fit in in this world. We want everyone to like us. We want friends who like us and neighbors who like us. Do we care whether or not we fit in with God? That's the real identity that we need is to be with Christ forever. I read a little story, uh, a true story from last century by a guy named Dr. Barnhouse. I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. He was a famous preacher in the last century. He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church two pastors ago um, there in Philadelphia. 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia is just a great church with a history of preaching God's Word. Anyway, Dr. Barnhouse, during World War II, met a young soldier, and he t- shared Christ with the soldier. The soldier became a Christian. The time came for the soldier to go home at the end of the war, and he was talking to Dr. Barnhouse. He said, you know, I'm afraid to go back home. He said, because I'm afraid I'm going to compromise my faith. He said, when I get around my family who, are not, who aren't Christians, you know, I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my brothers and sisters, I love my friends, and I just know I'm going to want to make them happy and please them. It's going to be really tempting for me to compromise my Christian stand there. And he's like, what do I do? How do do I endure? And so Dr. Barnhouse came up with this strategy. He said, all right, here's what I want you to do. When you get home, the first ten people you meet of your friends, just tell them you've become a Christian. That's it. He said, and don't worry, word will get around. (laughs) So that's what he did. He got off the train, stepped on the platform, and he bumped into this girl there he had known from before the war. And, oh, you're home. It's so good to see you. You know, how are you doing? And, you know, he said, oh, the I'm doing great. The greatest thing ever happened to me. She said, what? Did you get engaged? You know, and no, no, no. I've received Christ as my Savior and become a Christian. It's amazing. You know, and and of course the awkward like, oh. (laughs) Oh, it's been great seeing you again. And and, and the next person who came along, you know, was a friend from before the war. And, oh, good to see you. Oh, we got to have some parties now. We're going to party again. And and he said, oh, you know what? I got to tell you. I've become a Christian. I'm following Christ now. Oh, it's nice to see you again, you know. And, 
and this happened. And he, and he did that for the first ten people he met, according you know, to the story. And uh, as a result, everyone knew he was a Christian. Did he lose some friends? Yep. Not all. He lost some friends. But if you're accepted by Christ, who cares? <laughs> who cares? I mean, you don't want people to go away, but compared to Christ, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ our Lord. And I love that story because the guy wasn't rude, he wasn't obnoxious, he wasn't pushy. He just said, I'm a Christian now. What a difference that makes. And so don't be afraid to stand up for the name of Christ. Don't be afraid, even if it may cost you. Don't think that you need to capitulate to the temptations of fitting in with the religious and worldview beliefs of the world or giving in to the temptations of of sex or drinking or whatever compromise you personally are tempted toward. Just stand for Christ and say, I'm for Christ now. We must decide. Getting that white stone is worth it all. Let's pray.